Good morning, Sunridge. Oh my goodness. Was that not awesome? Can we thank our worship team? And I don't know if you noticed, but someone's back from an extended vacation, Mr. Ben Cherry. So, so good. Well, my name is Jed. It's a privilege to serve you as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we're continuing in our summer series entitled Psalms by the Numbers. And throughout the entirety of summer, we've been studying through the book of Psalms, taking bits and pieces of it, whole chapters, and learning. And I don't know about you, but I've been having a great time. But before we go there, we have a nice-to-know piece every week. And it's just a little tidbit of information that does or does not coincide with what we're teaching with. Typically, it does. And this morning's nice-to-know, this little bit of trivia for you to learn is that the life and ministry of Jesus were highly influenced by the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was highly influential to Jesus' life and ministry. That doesn't seem like trivia, but if we were to expound on that a little bit further, you would find out that Jesus quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Hebrew Scriptures. He is highly fond of it. And the Gospel writers, when they write about Jesus. They too quote from the book of Psalms to describe who he is and what he is going to accomplish. And then there are other places in the New Testament where Jesus is teaching, and even though he does not directly quote from the book of Psalms, you can see that the text is right there before the ears of the listener. That Jesus is saying things that would have hearkened back to long sections of this incredible book that we call Psalms. And this morning I would like to begin at this place where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And even though there isn't a direct quote, if you listen closely to where we are later in Psalms, you will see that Jesus is absolutely thinking about this psalm. It comes from Matthew chapter 6. Verse 25, it's going to be up on the screens, maybe you've heard it before. Jesus speaking, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? And can, can any of you, by worrying Add a single hour to your span of life. And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive after all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, a lot of us. And you could all raise your hands because I just read it to you. So we've all heard it. <laughs> Do not worry about your life. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a pretty normal human being. And when I hear these words from Jesus, the worry in my life does start to increase. 
Maybe you weren't stressed out, but you hear Jesus alluding to stress or anxiety, and suddenly you're actually thinking about the things that are stressing you out. You might hear these words of Jesus and feel like he's that friend that says, you look stressed out, you should relax. I don't know about you, but when people give me that type of advice, I'm not too keen on wanting to pay attention to it. I mean, if I'm stressed out, someone telling me to relax doesn't feel like the remedy or the medication that my soul needs. And yet Jesus says very calmly and clearly, do not worry about your life. Why don't you look at your neighbor and tell them, you look really stressed out. And if you're bold and you want to speak the truth in love, you can say back to your neighbor, well, you're the one that's stressing me out. Uh, you know, I heard about two college roommates that had just recently graduated and they were living together afterwards. They figured they would embark on this journey of figuring out the adult life together. Well, after several months of realizing that it's a cold and harsh world, that they probably weren't going to be using the degrees that they had just graduated with, they started to become increasingly agitated and frustrated with each other. And so suddenly, they found themselves at an impasse. They were so negative that they were beginning to take out their frustrations on the other. They were getting on each other's nerves. So one day, one of the roommates suggested, why don't we go to that place we haven't been to in a long time, that place called church? And they decided, well, they might as well see if God had something to say about it. And so they came on a Sunday morning. And unbeknownst to them, coincidentally, the pastor was speaking about stress and conflict that day. And he challenged all the congregants, take a passage of scripture this week and memorize it so that you, when you're faced with stress or conflict, can remember and meditate on the words of God. And so the roommates left. And on their way home, they said, why don't we take this challenge? We're up to our necks with each other, aren't we? And so they reconvened later on that evening after having Googled some Bible verses. And the first one began. She said, I didn't really put much thought into this, but I heard one time Jesus saying something like, love your neighbor as yourself. I like myself a lot, so I'm going to try and love you. Then the second said to her, well, I took this very seriously, and I also looked up the words of Jesus. I'd like to quote for you Matthew 16, 23. The first roommate said, okay, I'm ready for it. The second replied. Then Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you may be in this room thinking about people around you who have been a cause or source of great stress and frustration or conflict, maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a circumstance, your finances, your business, maybe it is an element of schooling or testing that you need to be engaged with and you're putting it to the side. I don't know what it is for you, but there's something I'm sure over the course of the last week or someone or multiple people that were a source of great stress towards you. And I wouldn't recommend that you go around quoting Matthew 16, 23. The Bible is a thing that you can certainly manipulate to say whatever you want. And that's not what we ought to do with the word and the words of God. But this morning, I would like to turn it a little bit. Because we all can, at various points in our life, I hope it's not your daily routine, but it's easy for us, like a pair of glasses, to put it on our eyes and look at this world through a critical or cynical or negative perspective. 
it's easy for the stress to compound so that we get to these places where everything around us seems to be another thing that drags us down, that gives us more anxiety or worry or depression. And I don't want to take us to a low place today. I've been very honest with you in the past. You've heard me teach about lament. You've seen that in this series with Danny and Britt. You've seen us speak from a place of difficulty and sorrow. And God can absolutely take our honesty and our raw emotions and feelings. But this morning, I'd like to turn to talk about the thing that stress gets in the way of. And that is life. I know that all of us here, your heart is beating, you are alive, but maybe you have seen the contrast and you don't know what it's like to be alive or feel as though you are living. And Jesus' words in Matthew 6 to me hearken back to a very important psalm, Psalm 104. But before we get there, we need to do a little bit of vocabulary. In your note sheet... If you've got it, it says, bless the Lord, oh my, and then a blank space. All right, what are you inclined to put there? Soul, good, you're right. But I'm going to have you write something different there this morning, and there's biblical precedent and proof for it. I would like you to write, bless the Lord, oh my, life. Now, I don't have time to go completely nerd academic on you and have a full anthropological discussion, philosophical, metaphysical, but I would like to ask you what you think the soul is. What is the soul? And I bet that most of us in this room, without even realizing it, we have a more Greek-influenced, Plato-influenced idea of what the soul is rather than a biblical understanding of what the soul is. When you think about the soul, what do you envision? Maybe something that you can't see, yes? This immaterial, spirit-like thing inside of you that when you die departs to go be with God. And that's a definition that many Western Christians would uphold to today. They're not exactly sure what it looks like, but there's something in us, the essence of us that escapes to be with God someday when we die. And that's very Platonic. It's dualistic. It's Greek influence. And again, we don't have the time to go into all this, but Plato, when he was thinking about metaphysics and form, capital F, he envisioned that there was something trapped inside of us that ought to be released out into the cosmos. And this physical world was full of evil and strife. And the goal for us was to escape from this place and go and be in the perfect and material place. Biblically, however, we see something entirely different. Psalm 104, we won't do it today, but it actually parallels the Genesis accounts of creation very closely. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we see this. It says, Then God formed a man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In other words, God breathed his spirit, his rock, into this man that he had formed, into his nostrils, and man became a living being. And it's hidden in the English, but in the Hebrew, the word that we have there at the tail end is nephesh or nephesh. And nephesh or nephesh throughout the first half of your Bibles, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, is translated at different points into soul, being, 
person, people, and life. You see, when God creates, he isn't creating something that's out of the gate evil. He creates, as you see in Genesis, over and over what he proclaims as good. And this is very important to understand, that biblically, the spiritual and the physical are so much closer than we think they are. That we can't just conceive of a spiritual life without seeing practical, physical things take place there. And so when the psalmist writes, bless the Lord, O my soul, or in the Shema, when we hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. What is being listed there is this entirety of our being, every facet and fiber, all parts of me ought to be directed at the one whom my breath is derived from. And now even though we certainly struggle to live in a way that would give God the glory in all that we do biblically, the goal, when we hear, bless the Lord, O my soul, we ought to be thinking about everything that comprises who we are, our emotions, our experiences, our thoughts, the littlest things. When you're driving on the road, when you're making a sandwich for your kid, when you're worshiping through song in the building, when you're speaking to a stranger in all of those experiences, God is either being blessed and acknowledged as good and the source of all good, or we are ignoring him and living in a manner that isn't a blessing to him and those around us. Now, that's a tough thing. I'm a human just like you are. And I can admit that blessing the Lord with my life is certainly a struggle and a lifelong journey that I'm so glad that I don't have to be alone in. You guys ready to go into Psalm 104? Here we go. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they flee. At the sound of your thunder they take flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that the earth may not again cover the earth. Excuse me, so that they might not again cover the earth. I don't have this up on the screen, but listen to the language here. You make springs gush forth from the valleys. You flow they flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. The wild donkeys quench their thirst by the streams. The birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. Isn't that good? I mean, is there any ounce of cynicism or negativity or stress in these lines? I see praise. And proclamation. I hear words that we just sang earlier today. If you've been with us this series, the Psalms, we've talked about how they were pieces of poetry, but they were also songs that were meant to be publicly sung. And these lyrics do declare a goodness about God and what He has created. And this Psalm depicts God and life in us in a certain way. 
And so I've got three statements that I would like you to consider about how Psalm 104 depicts things. And I say the word depicts carefully because just because something is depicted, it doesn't mean that you and I agree with it, yes? And so then we have to ask ourselves if what Psalm 104 depicts, we agree with. And if we disagree with it, what is it that colors our lens in an unhelpful way? Here's where I begin. Psalm 104 depicts that the God, excuse me, depicts the God who is in control, creates, and provides. Depicts the God who is in control, creates, and provides. Now, why would I put the article of speech, the, before God? Maybe you've heard this before, but in the Near Eastern world, it wasn't about whether or not there were gods or if God existed. It was about whose God was the strongest. Early peoples looked at nature and the world around them, and it was easy to understand why they would see the sun or the moon or the mountains and look at these things as celestial or natural deities. And so sacrificial systems People's surmise were birthed out of these early humans wanting to appease these things, looking for the rain to come, hoping that the earth would give them what they need. And so what's so revolutionary about the God that we find here in our scripture is that this God didn't create out of anger or warfare, but he creates and blesses and gives And he creates in a way that people can see he alone is the source of life and all of its goodness. He is in control. And in this control, he's created and he has provided for you and me. So what gets in the way of us seeing life this way? Any of you struggle with the idea of God being in control and what that looks like. Or perhaps you look at your own life and the stresses that you have, and then you wonder, how is it that God is providing for me? I'm barely making the bills. I don't have a job right now. I am alone. Whatever it is that you are facing or struggling with, perhaps you look at this depiction and you say, that can't be true. I'd encourage you to go back And read Psalm 104 and realize that this God who creates and gives has set things up in a way for us as humans to steward and receive and enjoy. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But what about God being in control? Our middle school pastor, Danny Sugimoto, and our middle school students are going off to Forest Home this week. And I'm incredibly excited for them. You can be praying. We've had a summer full of amazing camps. Our young adults went on their houseboats trips. Our kids had VBS of the week. Our high schoolers went to GMSD. Now our middle schoolers go to Forest Home. And then our fourth and fifth graders have an end of summer bash. And adults, we haven't forgot about you. We have August 5th at dinner in the park. It's been a great summer. One of the things that I love about Danny and why he's a great middle school pastor is he just has this thing about him that comes alive with students, and it's so silly. Uh, Years ago, he would do this thing where if kids were talking about something and he wanted to inject God into the conversation in a funny way, he would just burst out 
in song, and he would sing these words, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> Remember that Carrie Underwood song? Yeah, and, and it's a great country song. I love country music and, and all that stuff. But I think that song, although the sentiment I get isn't very accurate to how we ought to look at God's control in our lives. I'm pretty sure that God isn't micromanaging your life or just grabbing steering wheels from you and release so that you don't crash into things. There is a large element of responsibility that you and I have for our lives. I love Proverbs 16, 9. I love the way that we read this and sometimes we miss. It says the human mind plans the way, but the Lord directs the steps. And sometimes when we think about the sovereignty of God and his control in our lives, we feel as though that means that every single step that we make, he is the one, the puppeteer behind it. But I encourage you to think different because there are so many commands and invitations in Scripture where God is obviously not directing or telling us to do the opposite of what he's commanding or inviting us to do. And so the sovereign God in his control, to me, what I see throughout scripture is this incredible release of control to us. And that's where we understand things like stewardship. When I think about sports as a high schooler, I can't imagine playing basketball or football and having one of my coaches call a timeout and say, uh, Jed, get off the field or get off the court. You're not doing too hot, so let me play for you. There's something about a coach encouraging and challenging and guiding and letting us play. Look at Proverbs 16, 3. Just several verses before, I wish these two Proverbs were connected more often. It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And I think the longer that we walk with God, we see this beautiful thing where our plans sync up with his plans. And his desire for us, that we would be, as Romans 8, 29 says, conformed into the image of the Son. That's what we're predestined to be. More like Christ, more like Jesus. When I think about my role in this life, I remember being in college and I called my dad one day, and I had just broken up with my ex-girlfriend. It had only been like two weeks. And over the course of that two weeks, my dad had said stuff like, hey, you've been with this girl for a long time. Why don't you just relax and go out on some dates and enjoy college without a significant other? And like any teenager, I was like, okay, dad, thanks for your good advice. I'll certainly do that, right? <laughs> two weeks later, I'm calling him up and saying, dad, I found the girl and I want to marry her. No joke. No joke. And my dad's a gracious man. I don't remember what he said, but I'm sure if I were on the other end, I'd be like, you are such an idiot, man. And so I figured if I was at, I, I was 19 at the time. I was a sophomore in college. If I was going to tell my dad that I wanted to marry this girl, I was going to need to take a different type of control and responsibility for myself. Right? I grew up just swiping my dad's credit card and living in a way that, you know, it was all going to get taken care of and all this stuff. But when I called my dad that day, I hung up with the phone and I decided I was not going to do that anymore. And at 19 years old, my dad never paid a cent for me ever again. I paid the rest of my college, well, actually I'm still paying for my college, I'm almost done. 
<laughs> I started taking out loans on my own, and I started working multiple jobs. And by the time I was 22, three years later, with one semester of college left, I got married to the love of my life, Mallory. And we've been married ever since. That was almost eight years ago. And I'll tell you, it sounds like a good story now, but man, it was super hard. When I talk to young adults about responsibility and seeing that God has entrusted things to us, and in return, we trust God with our actions and what happens because of that, I think about being a 22-year-old who needed to figure out how to pay for college and to help support my wife, who was a career woman herself, but we needed to figure out this thing, and so my second semester of college, that first bit of being married, I worked three different jobs. I was a personal trainer at a, at a gym five minutes from church. I was an English tutor at school, and then I was on staff at our church as our high school associate. And my weekly schedule was pretty insane to me. I worked seven days a week. I had clients at the gym at 5 a.m. I would wake up at 4.15. I would drive the gym, I'd be like slapping myself on the way, and I'd arrive at the gym, and I'm trying to encourage these people at 5 a.m. to work out. That is a ridiculous thing. Okay, I would finish my shift around 7 o'clock. I'd drive back to school. I'd eat some breakfast. I would go to classes. I'd be there for a portion of the day. I would go back to the gym. I would train. I would go to church. In between there, there were tutoring hours sprinkled, 60 hours on the clock of work and 21 units, and married. I'd get home at 10 o'clock, and Mallory, who'd been working all day, working on her master's, working full-time, a driven woman as well, we would hang out from maybe 10 to 11. She and I would split. She'd work on her master's work. I would do my homework. I would sleep at 1 or 2 a.m. I would get up again at 4.15 and slap myself in the face and do it all over again. That semester was killing me. And I remember two weeks before graduation, I got a notification that I was graduating summa cum laude, highest honors. And I remember being like, yes, I've done it. And I walk into this meeting with my counselor, and then he shares these words, Jed, I don't know how to explain it, but we missed a class. Oh my goodness. I tried so hard to be composed, but when I walked away from that meeting, I'm sure, probably more than that, I'm sure I burst into tears. I mean, the exhaustion, I felt like I was living in a state of mania the whole time. It got me. And yet when I look back on that time and needing to take one more class over the course of summer after I walked and all that stuff, I could complain about it. I could look at it negatively. But when I think about being 22 years old and newly married with my wife and us trying to figure out what it means to steward this life and be a part of what God is doing in this world, I cannot help but think I am so, so glad that in my moments of weakness, I could depend on his strength and I could realize that this life isn't about me being passive and just waiting for things to happen, but actively engaging with the God of the cosmos who creates and accordingly has created a life for us to live that is good and challenging and exciting. 
Look at how Psalm 104 continues. I'm going to read it out of a different translation. If you're looking for something that reads a little bit differently, this is the voice. I love this translation. It does an incredible job taking nuances of Hebrew and Greek and academic scholars and linguists combined with Christian writers and, and musicians to write a translation that gives so much just rich language to what's here. And look at how they continue. Thus you grow grain for bread, grapes for wine, grass for cattle, all of this for us. And so we have bread to make our bodies strong, wine to make our hearts happy, oil to make our faces shine. Every good thing we need, your earth provides. Our faces grow flush with your life in them. The forests are yours, eternal ones, stout hardwoods, water deeply swollen with sap, like the great cedars of Lebanon you planted, where many birds nest, there are fir trees for storks, high hills for wild goats, stony cliffs for rock badges, for each place a residence, and for each residence a home. The moon strides through her phases, marking seasons as she goes, the sun hides at its appointed time, and with the darkness you bring, so comes night. When the prowling animals of the forest move about, it is then that lions seek the food you, the true God, give them, roaring after their prey. At sunrise they disappear and sleep away the day in their dens. Meanwhile, the people take to the fields and to the shops and to the roads, to all the places that people work, and to leave me when they rest. There's so much here, O Eternal, and so much you have made by the wise way in which you create riches and creatures fill the earth, of course, the sea is vast and stretches like the heavens beyond view, and numberless creatures inhabit her. From the tiny to the great, they swarm beneath her waves. Our ships skim her surface while the monsters of the sea play beneath. And all these look to you to give them food when the time is right. When you feed, they gather what you supply. When you open your hand, they are filled with good food. When you withdraw your presence, they are dismayed. When you evoke their breath, the life goes out of them, and they become again the dust of the earth from which you form them at the start. When you send out your breath, life is created, and the face of the earth is made beautiful and is renewed. That's beautiful stuff. You know, if you're looking for a translation that really accounts for just stuff in the Hebrew and the Greek and pulls it out in a way that invites you in, um, check out the voice. Here's what Psalm 104 depicts to me in that extended section. And I started speaking about it earlier. It depicts a creation whose stewards, receives, and enjoys within what God has created. Do you hear these animals that are enjoying and living and getting? Uh, we live in Temecula or Marietta, but you do realize this is wine country. Come on, it's right there. Psalm 104, 15, and wine to gladden the human heart. How cool is that? We get to live. We get to steward and enjoy and receive within what God has created. How many of us live in a way where it feels like everything is obligation I've got to do this. What about opportunity? What about actually taking this life? We get to do it one way, this one time. We have one chance this way. Why not enjoy within what God has created and bless him and bless those around us? 
I've got a video that I'd like to show you. It's about five minutes, and then we'll wrap this thing up. If you read in the Bible the story of Joseph and David, you will find me there. My story is their story. My name is John Mark. I am 17 years old. This is the village where I grew up in Haiti. Most of the people here are poor. There aren't many opportunities for the uneducated. My mom was very gentle and generous. Her dream was for me to get an education, to not have the same life that she had. But going to school cost money. She would go around with guys, doing bad things with them to get money so I can eat. One day she stole something from someone. The people tied her to a post and beat her. I cried for them to stop, but they just laugh at me. All of these things happened because of me, so that I might have a better life. A few months later, my mom got very sick, and on Christmas Eve in 2006, she died in the hospital. I didn't even find out until six days later. After her death, I was alone. I was 10 years old. I was so hungry and I was like, Lord, I know you fit 5,000 people. I am only one person, why can't I get fit? And then God provided. I've been at Mission of Hope for eight years now. When I first woke up here, I thought I was dreaming. You were sleeping in the mud. Now you get bed, you have shower, food. I couldn't believe it. Totally couldn't believe it. Now you and the family. but God is giving me one here. It's paid for by people I don't know. They sponsor me to go to school. I like math and physics the best. If I wasn't in school, I would not have a future. I'm learning so much that I want to share with others too. So I tutor. If somebody comes to me and tells me he's hopeless, I will understand because I've been through it. If I don't take what God has given me and use it to help others, who will? 
my mom were here, I think she would cry and be proud. She know that all her dreams are coming true for me. I like the story in the Bible of Joseph and David. Both of these men had great difficulties, just like I did. But God was with them always. Maybe the bad things in your life happen so that you can become strong. It is from the struggles that we grow. that to our high schoolers several years ago when I was still a high school pastor and spent time praying for John Mark with our students. He and I are probably the same age. There's probably a year separating us, living on different parts of this planet, both losing moms in our teens. And yet when I hear him say, if I don't take what God has given me and use it to help others, then who will? He talks about people that he doesn't know who have provided a way for him to have the life that he has. You know what that is? Those are human beings who are stewarding what God has entrusted them with. There are people that we do not see that are a part of John Mark's story. Carpenters that built Mission of Hope. Someone years ago who had this dream to help orphans in another country. People just like you and me who decided that they were going to give to others financially. There are so many ways that human beings here have done what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, after this glorious writing of what the ministry of reconciliation is. He says, as, excuse me, as fellow co-workers with God, we urge you not to take the grace of God in vain. All these people who decided they would take this one life that they've been gifted with and not use the grace of God in vain, but would actually go and be as Jesus would. I think John Mark embodies what the last bit of Psalm 104 depicts. Verse 31 says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his work. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, praise the Lord. And if you look at that last part about the sinners and the wicked, this is very different from Psalm 139, which I taught on last week. And if you're confused about parts of the Bible that speak in that manner, you can go back and listen to that sermon, but the idea here is that this earth would just be filled with goodness, people who have been redeemed and transformed. Psalm 104 depicts a person who is accordingly intent on praising, trusting, and living for God, the giver of these gifts. Now, I know I'm a little bit long, but I told you two weeks ago that I would finish a story, and this is where we'll end. I'm so glad they're here. This morning, Bob and Marge Carlson are sitting right there. They weren't here two weeks ago when I last taught, but they're here almost every week. Bob and Marge, would you guys wave your hands? <laughs> the Carlsons have been married for 75 years. I love them dearly. 
I consider them great friends and people that I look to for the endurance of Jesus and living a life for him. And I started a story two weeks ago where our 1824 students, our young adults, we went to the Carlson's home to have tea together after helping around their house. And as we were sharing tea, I asked them these or this question, what's something that you would want us to hear and not forget? And last week, I, I shared Marg's response where she opened up with Obe for the grace of God. Do you remember that? Okay, so here's what happened before that that I said, I'll finish in two weeks. When I asked, what's the advice that you would give us, Bob, at one end of the table, started with these words. He said, stay active. He said, stay active and keep moving. And I didn't share this with you, but when I first met Bob and Mark five years ago, I met them at a fitness 19 at 7 in the morning. <laughs> I walked in, and they were walking on the treadmill, and Mark was waving to me, and I'd never met her before. And I walked over, and they introduced themselves, which is incredible. I mean, they're still walking and talking to me. I don't know about you, but it's hard to walk and talk while you're on the treadmill. And so Bob's advice, so fitting working out in his 90s, stay active and keep moving. And then it was Marg's turn, and she said, oh, but for the grace of God. And Bob, hearing this from Marg, said, preach it, sister. <laughs> and Marg said, Jed, what did he say? And I said, Marg, he said, preach it, sister. And she said, thank you, brother. <laughs> and, and after, oh, but for the grace of God, what was the next thing that she said? Does anyone remember? What'd she say? Yes, your life is your sermon, she said, right along those lines. Because I, I had said, Mark, can I use this in a sermon someday? And Mark said, Jed, your life is your sermon. <laughs> Man. And then Bob closed this out after listening to his wonderful wife preach a little bit. Bob started talking about life and heaven and, and Bob said these words. He said, we're only just beginning. The wonder and awe at 97 years old to say, we're only just beginning. And he followed that up with, I have a whole cosmos to explore with Jesus. Your life is your sermon. We're only just beginning. What kind of sermon are you telling? Is it one that just looks cynical and stressed out? Or does it at some point turn to the God who has a peace that does trans excuse me, transcend and surpass understanding? Are you living a life that doesn't seem to indicate that God is good? Or are you living in a manner that profoundly praises the one who has gifted you with not obligation, but opportunity? And if you aren't, I'd encourage you to join me and Bob and Mark and others who are attempting to live in that redeemed life. We're only just beginning. Let's, re this week, let's live like it. Let's pray.